Welcome and thanks for listening to the Spirit of Time podcast. It's a spirited discussion of watch topics and some of the cool bon vivant stuff that overlaps our hobby, especially fine spirits, craft beer, cocktails, and wine. In other words, if it's boozy, smoky, sudsy, or smooth, we'll probably talk about it. Think of it as a watch-focused happy hour for your commute. We are your hosts. I am Matt. I'm Greg. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. saddle. Matt, how are you today? Dude, I am great, which is a total lie. We talked to each other earlier. I'd, I'd had a bad day, but uh, the day's basically over and I am uh, I'm ready to talk watches and have a drink, which I desperately need. So it, this, it is, uh, this is your happy place now. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's all good. We are, uh, we're coming off of a a fairly busy week and we've had fantastic weather we had some some real rain again recently but uh the weather has been back to southern california like april form right a little bit of clouds a little bit of a little bit of fog in the morning but overall fantastic and i'm digging it spring is here i can wear my cool shirts yeah you're gonna have to put away your barber for a little while and uh some of the other things but you get to break out more of your you know magnum pi hawaiian shirt uh you know that, that seasonal wear that you have Oh yeah, hundred percent. On our last episode with John, I think I I teased the fact that you know with um, which that was a great episode, by the way. Wasn't that sort of an, an unusual kind of a thing? The response to that has been fantastic, mosquito boat. But uh, now that the weather's good and I'm spending more time outside, I'm definitely back into like the the mai tais and the rum punch and stuff like that. I got to learn pina colada this summer. Interesting. Not a huge pina colada guy, but uh, I would I'd be willing to to play around and see what would what might work. Yeah, we'll have to see how that goes as the summer develops. I'm kind of like James Stacy. I'm good for one like sweet cocktail, and then you know I just I have to go to like a a lighter thing or dry white wine or something like that. Yeah, no, I hear you. Well, I think our guest. Uh, well, I just buried the lead. We have a guest today, and I think our guest is well versed in in a number of these things, including Southern California weather. Um, but uh, it, it'll be fun to, to get into some fun chat with uh, another special uh, guest that uh, we have on tap for today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, as you say, you know, there's no point in uh, in belaboring this. We have a guest and we want to respect this time. Um, we are joined today by none other than, I would say, like, you know, watch pod, uh, what's the word like pioneer i mean you were you were certainly one of the biggest um platforms biggest shows in the past and he's been a guest on our show before this is cameron weiss of weiss watch company company cameron how you doing i'm doing great and i i'm happy to be back it was good talking with you guys last time and so i'm excited to to get to chat again well, dude, thanks. Been, we, not, that, not that you haven't always been busy, because I feel like <laughs> you you are a busy, busy person. But um, you've been up to some super, super cool stuff, both you know, sort of on the personal side, and of course on on the business side. So we're we're thrilled to be able to catch up with you and and really take a, a far ranging conversation. I think on just a whole bunch of really fun stuff, uh, including Weiss watches. So thanks for joining us again. It's awesome to see you. Yeah, thank you. It was actually uh, this past year. I, I kind of told myself, 
I'm going to say yes to a lot of things and just see where it takes me. And it took me into just an amazing amount of work on my plate and schedule that is totally full, overbooked. So uh, I think this next year, or once the summer hits, uh, it'll be the year of no for me. <laughs> <laughs> the year of yes turns into the year of no, perhaps. I yeah. Think it, yeah. It takes the balance for sure. Right? Yeah, the year of yes, but the summer of no, then the yeah, autumn of, of no. Well, we have the uh, like the secret back channel because Whitney told us that we should just call her whenever we want to talk to you and she'll you know, put <laughs> us on your schedule. I think, I think she controls your calendar. Yeah, well, if... If I don't hop on emails or social media, it could be like weeks of me staying off of that stuff, just head buried in work. So she'll check up and, and make sure there's no messages I, I've been ignoring. When you're busy at the bench and doing all, the, all kinds of other things, which are probably, quite frankly, a little bit more what you prefer to be doing, I have to imagine. Yeah, yeah, I do like, I like being at the bench or working on any of the machines that we've got. Uh, that's kind of my passion is hands-on. So sitting down in front of the computer and, and doing emails and even all the accounting and, and tax prep and everything, it's just the business side definitely takes away from the watchmaking creativity and, and hands-on process. Well, I can imagine, but uh, I can attest to the fact that the the watchmaking chops are, are still like in full effect. Um, and hey, with that, you know, without uh, being too coy about it, why don't we do our wrist check, poor check? Because I have a fun wrist check. You do, actually. So, Greg, why don't you lead off? All right. Sounds good. Uh, I have on the 38 millimeter standard issue field watch latte dial, uh, which has been a favorite of, uh, of ours for, for a little while. Um, I've had a chance to to have both the original field watch in latte and now this 38 millimeter. And um, I, I just love the 38 millimeter. This is such a compact, you know, presentation of, of the field watch. Um, the latte dials always had a little special place in my heart, you know, just such a neat, unique uh, dial color that I don't think you see almost anywhere else, uh, which is hard to say these days. And um, just the, the the elements that make this one stand out from some of the others, you know, in, in the Weiss catalog, right, with the skeletonized hands, and um, it's just a it's just a great watch, and uh, it's a treat to to have this one on the wrist. So that's what's on my wrist today. Cool. I'm glad you have that one, dude. Can I interject for one second? That is, um, with the exception, and academically, I know this to be true, but I I don't have a way to time it because the mechanism is a little bit different. But the only watch I have that's more accurate than that latte dialed Weiss watch is my uh, Grand Seiko Spring Drive, which is about that's just under plus two per week. The Spring Drive, but Cam, I don't know. I I think I sent you pictures of it. You know, on the time grapher. I throw yeah, that thing yeah. on and I'm, I'm consistently like minus one to zero. And That's good. it's just really, really, really stable in all positions. Great amplitude on that watch. You did a, a fantastic job regulating that. Yeah, watch. that's that's really good for a, a manual wound watch yeah, just because yeah. with manual wind, right, you got full tank. And then as the power goes down, you're going to have some timing issues, but shouldn't it shouldn't really be that noticeable. But usually an automatic watch will be more accurate because it's always got the same amount of wind, which should be full if you're wearing it. 
That's a great yeah. call. I hadn't actually considered that. You know, just yeah. you're never getting topped off on the manual wind until you, you know, end up having to fully juice it up again. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, as just as with uh, rifles, only accurate rifles are interesting. I wouldn't say only accurate watches are interesting, but they're certainly more interesting when they're accurate. And that's an accurate watch. What do you got in the glass, yeah. bro? Uh, catering to the crowd as usual. Um, I know both of you are, are big Fortaleza fans. And um, not too long ago, I was able to get my hands on this uh, Winter Blend 2022. And so uh, the folks down at Fortaleza do, for the, this is the fourth iteration now, they do a, a special reposado that they release sometime in the fall slash winter. It trickles out into the markets. Pretty hard to get. I don't know how many bottles they made. Let's see if they said it on here. Um, I don't know exactly how many bottles, but it's not a significant amount, uh, at least by tequila standards. But this one was um, aged separately and used French oak casks that previously um, aged Oloroso and used Hungarian oak barrels that previously aged uh, Tokaji, and they're blended together with a classic Reposado. And so uh, there's three distinct expressions of the Reposado that get married together in this one. Uh, then they rest together for six months and this one clocks in at 43 and a half percent. So pretty, pretty darn cool. Very glad to have this one, um, in the cabinet. Very nice. Cool, man. Well, Cam, I know you're in the workshop, probably not super safe to be, uh, boozing it up there with all the machines and stuff like that. But if you have anything poured, but certainly if you have something on the wrist, what have you got today? Well, I'm actually, uh, I've got the 38 millimeter as well. 38 millimeter auto black dial uh on the green canvas and i've been wearing this one a lot lately um i in fact i just wore it on a on a gravel bike ride that was 100 miles through these crazy jeep roads and rivers and crossing crossing streams and everything it was pretty wild but uh i i just have been gravitating towards the 38 auto lately and loving it as far as a pour goes for me I'm on water right now because I do have some more watchmaking to get back to after this. Yeah. I think, um, drinking and cooking works drinking and like, uh, yeah. Precision machining, maybe, maybe not so much. So, yeah. I will say I do have a, uh, I do have a, uh, Mezcal at home, a Vago Mezcal. Yeah. That I'm looking forward to pouring later. Big fan, big fan of Vago. Great, yeah. great stuff. Great, cool, cool, really cool story too. By the way, it's amazing how that brand came together. Oh, I don't know the story. We'll, we'll we'll get into it later. But long story <laughs> short, you know the um, Judah, uh, the the the, su the son-in-law met the wife down in Mexico in Oaxaca, and he, you know, she introduced him to her family. And at the time, the patriarch was Acalino, and he was like blown away how incredible uh, the mezcal was. And so they decided to bring it to market. Actually, it was a surfing accident, I think. You'll, you'll appreciate that. I think he, I think he had gotten a surfing accident in down in maybe like Puerto uh, Escondido uh, and, uh, and, and his future wife was a nurse. And so they hit it off and they created a family and blended together and, and then blah, voila, we get Vago sort of worldwide and not just uh, in their village. Wow, that's cool to know. Yeah, that's a cool story. I'll send you a, I'll send you something like a pod or something if you're just sitting around and you want to throw it on. Yeah. Well, hey, Greg, just you know, let's expand on that for two seconds. Is is that widely distributed? I mean, can people around the country listening to this get that? 
I think so. Cameron, you can find it at a decent bottle shop, right? Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you've got a, like a local liquor store that stocks a, a nice selection of different tequilas, you should be able to get it from them or you might be able to ask and they can stock it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They they may have gotten an, a, like a nice investment from a larger company in the last few years. So um, they're pretty, yeah, I, I'd say that's an amazing one. If people are looking for a mezcal, they're not super like familiar with the category or they just want to sort of, that's one I would ac- absolutely recommend because you could probably find it in most major markets. Cool. Yeah. Why, uh, why skip over something like that? If there's, you know, something you can open the box a little bit on and, you know, for people who are interested, um, certainly I am, you know, I want to kind of dip my toe a little bit deeper into mezcal this year, especially with, uh, the cocktails and stuff that I want to make where, you know, I might otherwise use something either, you know, kind of smoky or with that sort of, uh, uh, phenolic backbone. Anyhow, um, take us home, Matt. What's on your wrist? What's in your glass? All right, so on the wrist, uh, I we talked about this watch once before, but this is the uh, the Weiss, similar in format to yours. This is the the thirty eight millimeter, the hand cranker uh, standard issue, and this one is the the LE executed in titanium with the agave dial. I probably should have uh, some kind of tequila or mezcal in the glass, but I'm I'm actually out of tequila right now, so I've got a beer poured, and this is the. This is a Veltenberger Kloster. This is the uh, 1050 AD, Anno 1050. And this is a, a Mertzen beer from them. It's pretty good. Um, you know, uh, scale of one to 10, I'm giving this like a six. It's got good sort of good caramel and like malty notes. It's a little flat on bitterness. I don't like these super bitter, but this is even for me, this is a little bit less punchy than I would want. Um, the color is great. Uh, it tastes quite good. It it noses really well. It's just a little soft, but uh, ABV is 5.5. I really like this beer. I've had a number of like the, the cloister beers from Germany. These are primarily from Southern Germany, Bavaria, um, in and around like the Munich area, or in this case, um, further East in Regensburg. And they make a number of beers and this is the kind of thing you can find. I think probably people in the Midwest and back East have better luck finding like the high quality German imports than we do, but we've got a, a good spot to go to, Greg, if you've ever been there. There's the uh, the butcher shop up there in the north end of Glendale in Montrose, and they have a lot of great German beers there, including stuff from Omdex and uh, Veltenberg. So um, yeah, good stuff. That is what is in the glass. The, the watch is unbelievably good. Um, so good. It's, it is chef's kiss. Yeah. Well, and there's a few things, right, to, to kind of you know shout out. First, um, I got this engraved. Cameron, thanks for kind of suggesting that. But the other thing that's cool is, um, Cameron, you you guys do the engraving in-house. Yes. Yeah. I've got a, a pretty cool little uh, fiber laser that I can even cut. I can do laser cutting with it because it's strong enough. But yeah, every kind of laser mark that we need to do on titanium, steel, uh, brass, we can do it right here. Yeah, the, the execution is super, super clean. And it just kind of makes it my watch to kind of celebrate, you know, doing this this podcast with Greg for two years, which is cool. I would say too, we were talking about this before we came on. I mean, certainly not to take away anything from previous watches, but just having been able to handle and own a variety of your watches from different generations, as I said, as I said before, there's kind of these different, very minor, like not visible with the naked eye but little iterative changes in like the quality of the finish and 
you know, just the, the overall, like the edges, everything is just like perfect on this watch. Considering, you know, what somebody would pay for a watch of this, this quality coming from Weiss, um, you get a lot, you really get a lot with this watch. I'm curious. I never asked you this. I mean, I like the font that this is on, uh, that, you know, the, the engraving is, it just says spirit of time, but are you able to do other kinds of fonts and script and stuff like that? Or is it, is it more limited or, you know, for people who ever want to get a watch engraved? Cause I recommend it when you can. Yeah, I've done, I have done some other fonts. I can, I can do pretty much any font. Uh, as long as I have the, the font files, it's not a problem. I've even done some engravings that are different alphabets, right? And that gets a little tricky because it's hard for me not knowing the language and not like I really have to decipher the symbols of another alphabet. But yeah, there, there's been some interesting engravings over the past almost 10 years that we've been doing this now. Yeah. It's to me, it seems like, okay, now it's just, this is sort of like the getting the first tattoo, you know, now it's like, okay, now there's going to be, there's going to be more. <laughs> right. Right. It won't be the last, I think. <laughs> right. Right. For sure. So anyway, super cool. And what I really appreciate the, about this watch and this, everything in this, I mean, not this specific watch, but everything you make in that 38 millimeter and I guess the 42 as well, but the 38 in particular, both the, the hand wind and the automatic is the, you sort of call it like a general purpose, like a field watch, a standard issue watch, but to me, and it, and it is, but this could easily be something that competes with like an IWC mark, you know, in terms of like its aesthetic, you know, with the, the numerals around, you know, the outside, you've got, everything is just good and clear. The handset, the sword hands, I love it. It took a little getting used to. I had, I probably looked at this watch for hours before I realized like what was different about it, and the fact that the the minute and um, hour hands don't have a counter counterweight, so they just come like right out of the pinion, and you know it looks super super clean. And on this particular dial and handset configuration, the, the hands are so stark in comparison, right? Because it's got like a black polish. They really stand out against that agave, like light green dial. And it's just incredibly legible. It's not like anything I've ever seen before at any price point. It's super cool. I love it. Bitch and watch. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for for working with me to get it. I know it was a bit of a pain in the ass, but it was definitely (laughs) worth it. That's sort of of like MO with Matt. You know, sometimes he's a pain in the ass, but ultimately it's it's worthwhile. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, man. So that's our... Our wrist check, four check. Um, Cameron, can we dive in? I mean, you've, as Greg alluded to, and you kind of confirmed, I mean, you've been super busy and doing a lot of stuff, but some of it's been like, not just, you know, nose to the grindstone stuff. You've got some, some cool things that you've done recently, including a trip to Mexico. Can you tell us about that? Like what was involved? What'd you do? Where'd you go? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I've been busy at the workshop doing watchmaking and we have a few new machines that we've well, and I say we a lot, but really it's me. <laughs> so when I say we've been doing things, it's, it's always me. Um, but I, I was able to kind of slip away from the workshop for a little while. And I bought a Defender, a D90. Nice. It's a, an old fire, like emergency response vehicle from Sardinia. And... <clears throat> 
it has it's from 1992 it's super low miles just didn't get used a lot basically it had a it had a pto system in there that was designed to power hydraulic tools or implements and they would use it for rural kind of rural road rescues there yep when they needed yeah yeah pneumatics kind of things yeah. exactly so they had this trailer i i haven't seen the trailer but i would imagine it was some sort of little trailer with a mini jaws of life kind of setup on it and it hooks right right into the pto and you could sit in the back of the d90 on those uh flip it fold up uh, bench seats the jump seats and you have the controls right there to operate the uh the jaws of life and and do whatever rescue you need, but you can do it on some of the steep dirt roads that they have there. Uh, and I just, I kind of fell in love with this truck immediately. It was exactly what I had been looking for. So as soon as I, uh, as soon as I found it on the internet, I immediately contacted the the guy who was selling it, and I was like, "Let just take my money, take my deposit, <laughs> just take it. Like here it is. I don't know when I'm going to be able to get this truck. I don't know." how the whole thing's going to work out, but here's my money. So he then went on to tell me that he's trying to set up some new kind of tours and he's in Tucson, Arizona, and they'll do tours through the desert. And he really loves going down to Mexico uh, and exploring some kind of rural towns in Sonora. And also they go to the beach as well. But he had this kind of tour coming up, and he said, I want to try something new. I want to bring a mechanic along with a group of guys with some Land Rovers, and we'll drive down to Mexico. We'll go to Sonora, and we'll do, like, maintenance kind of tutorials on the trucks. So my truck had a couple things that they knew it would need. Um, had like a, a leaking rear wheel bearing, right? Minor things, but something that you could fix on the side of the road if you need to down there. And there was a couple other trucks that had some maintenance things that needed to be fixed and they, they knew that they needed to be fixed. So the mechanic loaded up one truck with tools and parts. And then there was, I think it was three other trucks, one of which was my new truck, new to me. And we drove down from Tucson into Mexico with, you know, the, the plan of going to this very rural town in, in Sonora and driving up a mountain and camping at the top of the mountain. And I thought, like, this is this is the best way to pick up this car that I've never seen. I've never driven. Uh, I, I just pick it up and leave with a mechanic and... They must know that the car is good, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't want to take me down to Mexico. So yeah, no, I, that sounds like the uh, the ultimate adventure version of like a European delivery for a BMW or something, right? That exactly. It's uh, it's definitely the the old Land Rover style version of European delivery. Man, that is so cool. So, so the trip itself, I mean, tell us about it. It, it, it. We saw pictures, but it's it looked incredible. Yeah. Uh, so starting off, I actually, I made it one block away from the shop uh, <laughs> and I immediately lost my clutch. 
turned out the the master cylinder was all gunked up. So everybody else, there was a brewery right there. Uh, they went to the brewery, <laughs> and then I hung back with a mechanic, and we replaced the master cylinder and got the clutch back. So again, this is before you even left Tucson. Yeah, we hadn't even left Tucson. I, I literally I hit the stop sign. I turned onto the main road and then lost the clutch. Oh, so that sounds like somebody right back to the workshop. That sounds like somebody did like some strategic sabotage. Like we let's have a few drinks before we go on this trip. Give him a bum master cylinder. Right. <laughs> so immediately, uh, like within five minutes, we got the the hood is off the car, just pops right off, and we're digging in to replace the the master cylinder and. I've never done that, but I got to help and learn and um, that having a mechanic along for the trip was just instantly valuable right there. Um, so that was a great start. <laughs> and then maybe uh, like an hour and a half later, we're cruising down to Mexico. That's amazing. That's so cool. Yeah. And so, so you guys had design so you're essentially going through sonora on your way to to a particular like mountain mountainous area is that right yeah so we crossed over um first we went to uh, a little town called bisbee arizona which is southern arizona you could pretty much see over the border from that town it's an old mining town and we stayed in a little like bed and breakfast there the next morning we were up and out pretty early to, to cross the border into Mexico. And once we, uh, once we crossed over, then we had to drive. It was kind of a long drive to get to, our, I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's a big city there. It, the border crossing is Naco, which is a pretty small town. It's one of the smaller border towns, but to kind of leave that, what you would consider a city, and get out into more farmland. We drove by Cananea, which is actually the largest copper mine in the world. Uh, it's pretty spectacular to, to see the operation there. Just from off the road, you can see the amount of dust that is flying up from all the, the mining creates an entire cloud system that's just blowing out with the wind. Pretty spectacular. But anyway, we, we kept cruising by and we end up our destination was a place called Banamichi, which is a small town, uh, very rural. Uh, so Sonora is actually one of the only, I think it might be the only state in Mexico that is legally allowed to sell beef to the U.S. So Sonora, raised, there's a lot of cattle being raised. So a lot of cattle land and ranch land. And this town was kind of supported by that. So we went there and we sat down to meals with some local families. They cooked us amazing Sonoran food. Uh, I also got to go to a couple of backyard kind of distilling operations where they're making something called Bacanora, which is, it's a certain kind of tequila spirit or agave spirit, not tequila spirit, agave spirit that uh, uses a certain plant, right? And it's a, it's a very small agave. So the guy who was making it 
he was saying he'd been making it since he was like 11 years old with his father and his father's father, which is interesting because it's only been illegal or it's only been legal to make it since 1992, I think. Uh, so they became legal at some point making it there, but he would gather 80 to a hundred, uh, agaves and then he would roast them overnight. Then he would go through the, the whole distilling process, right? He's mashing with a, with like a gas motor thing. And he's got this concrete setup where all the, the mashed up agave after it's been smoked overnight, uh, is kind of flowing onto this concrete thing that's funneling it all into one area. And then he'll take that mash and he'll start to distill it. Uh, I think he said he, he would distill twice. Mm -hmm. And then you can drink it immediately. But they prefer to let it sit for at least a year just in glass bottles or stainless. Uh, and I haven't tasted it at that age uh but what they said was that it'll kind of mellow and will be a little smoother but I, it was just the coolest thing to go to this these backyard distillers and they don't even nothing is bottled right you got to bring your own bottle and they'll fill it up and it's I, maybe i think it was uh fif 15 or 20 pesos or something like that to to fill a, a liter Basically, so like show, show up with, um, yeah, it is. Yeah. Show up with as many of those, like, um, you know, two quart water bottle, empty water bottles as possible. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was pretty cool. And seeing that, and seeing how like with minimal tools and even all of this outside, right. No workshop or anything. No, no AC, the, the amount of work that goes into producing mm -hmm. that is impressive so what it tastes like i mean was it uh was it pretty drinkable or because you, you oh, sort of indicated drinkable. you okay very drinkable uh even the fresh like just distilled stuff that, that i tasted was amazing um it was a very like like i said it's they're smoking and like roasting those agaves for a decent amount of time in order to soften them up and I guess convert some sugars and whatever it is that, that's happening in that process. But you definitely get that smokiness. Uh, and it reminded me of Mezcal just because I don't know of too many other smoky beverages like that, but it definitely has a totally unique flavor um, that is unlike mezcal. The only thing it really shares is that smokiness, and it's probably because they're produced in the same manner where they're taking a, a different agave and roasting it. Were but, they able to tell the um, like a general uh, like ABV? I, I feel like a lot of those producers are so tuned in with the spirit that they can sort of shake it, take a look at the pearls, and tell you, "Oh, that's about forty-three and a half percent," you know, or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, he did. Uh, I forget what he said he, he would go for, um, but he said depending on the, the distillation, he would then water it down to get the, the ABV he was going for. I forget what it was, but it's, it's pretty strong stuff. Yeah, That's yeah. The, yeah, it's up there. <laughs> so cool. What, a, what an incredible yeah. experience. And just to be able to share it with people sort of in their setting, you know, in their environments is, is I think, even more, even more special. 
yeah, that's that's the best part to to meet the guy that's actually making it and has been making it for. Uh, I mean, I, he probably was in his seventies, late seventies, sixty so years or so of making it a long time. Yeah, yeah, he knows how he to do it. He's... Uh, he mentioned the the machine that he used to smash up and crush the uh, the agaves. It wasn't always gasoline powered, right? It used to be powered by hand, so that was his job as the as the kid, backbreaking that wheel to actually crush all of the agaves up, and that's that's a lot of work. Builds character, yeah, and he was full of character. <laughs> Just looking at his hands, I could tell he's made many batches. <laughs> Right on. So, Greg, have you ever tried that? It's Again, it's Bacanora? Bacanora, yeah. Um, I have. It's been, you know, you don't see it a ton. Um, you might find at a really boutique, not even boutique, that's not the right word, at a real, like a really good specialty bottle shop, you maybe, in a big market too, you might find maybe one uh, or two. And there's not even a lot that gets exported to the States, I don't think. So I don't see it often. I, I've had it uh, on occasion, but it's not, not frequently. Yeah, it's... Uh... I did. I bought some directly from the uh, from the makers, and then I also bought one bottle there that was uh, for export. Right, it was actually bottled and labeled and everything, and that one was not as good. Surprise! Uh, it didn't have the same depth of flavors, and probably also the fact that it was in a regular bottle and it's a regular commercial kind of operation. I didn't have a connection to it as well, right? That'll change it. Not knowing the person that put in the, the blood, sweat, and tears to, to make it. But you don't see Bacanora very often in the U.S. because it just, it isn't produced in, in big numbers. And you have to really, he would drive his truck out to these cattle lands that he knows the ranchers who have the rights to those lands. And he would collect the the plants in his truck. And because they're such a small plant and they take so long to grow, you can't really get huge volumes of them. And there's no way to really commercially farm them that would be efficient enough. So I think it's just one of those types of one of the agave spirits that kind of has to be small volume production. So not a lot of people that are in the, the business of import-export alcohol and trying to make a lot of money off of it are getting into it. Yeah, it's rustic, it's artisanal, and you know it's the kind of thing probably there's not enough people have heard of it or had it to have there be a demand for it. You just got to kind of know. If you know, you know. Yeah, and it's yeah. out of place. You know, it's, it's, it's a very particular you know, um, place that it comes from, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Right on. So this is you then driving around in Mexico. You come across the uh, the you know what we'll call sort of tongue in cheek the Mexican moonshine the the or the equivalent in the form of bacanara, right? So that's a cool experience. Um, how does the rest of the trip shape up? Is everything okay with the truck? I meant to ask you, what color is it? It's red. So it is red. Uh, okay. Yeah, because it was, and it's a special <laughs> uh, like the the emergency response red is a special brighter red color than the standard. Uh, rovers. Right on. Our, our sort of a mutual watch friend, uh, Mike Pearson um, with Zodiac, formerly of Bremont, 
uh, I believe, I'm hoping I'm not talking out of school here, but I think Mike got a uh, former ambulance defender from from the UK and you know moving back to the United States last year I think he brought it over and I want to say his is like this blue color it's it's cool and again I think it had been a you know emergency services vehicle too just a, a different flavor a different color but I was wondering if yours was red or what and it is cool yeah yeah it's red with a like a cream colored top and cream colored wheels that's cool yeah you don't see a lot of the red ones around especially not this the bright red like that uh, so it's it's definitely unique looking, and it's uh, because it's from Italy, right? It was made in the UK, sent to Italy, and it is a left-hand drive. So that makes it very nice for bringing to the US. Yeah, yeah a lot easier. Yeah. yeah. I did have one upgrade done. Uh, I had air conditioning put in. <laughs> Which that's you know, a good move. We were we were talking about California weather and and uh, how the the weather's getting nice in California right now. Well, here in Nashville, we're just about to get into sweating season, <laughs> and it will just be damp, damp, sweaty clothing for the next four or five months. AC is a must. Yeah. Yeah, there's only so much like, you know, window down driving you could do and you can only drive so fast to get some airflow. No, that's cool. So the rest of the trip turned out okay. I mean, no, you know, no uh, uh, broken prop shafts or anything like that. No, nothing, uh, no major problems. We we were able to, we got some time on a lift at a local mechanic there. Um, and we were able to kind of go through some of the vehicles and fix some things that, that had come up over the driving. We did a lot of miles off-road, uh, driving up up a mountain, basically, on, on cattle roads. And then we camped at, at the top of the mountain, the ridge line, right, where you could look to one side and you could look to the other side. Um, and just spectacular views. Unbelievable landscape. I was really, really blown away by, uh, by how beautiful Sonora is. Yeah, I've never been. Greg, have you? No, no, I haven't. Um, that's a part of Mexico that I, I have not had the pleasure of visiting. Yeah, it was gorgeous. I, I hope to go back. I I uh, will probably try and make another trip down in the, the rover. Yeah, yeah. The way that that was set up and, and probably the people that you were with, it sounds like they were probably all pretty pretty fun and cool too. So that's that's the right way to do it. Yeah. Well, actually, I, came, I brought... Uh, a friend of mine who does our photography for social media for, for Weiss. And we made a short video, which will we'll be putting out later this month, I believe. Nice. It'll, you'll be able to see some of the landscapes and see me driving through uh, some of those ranch roads. We did quite a few creek crossings and things like that, which I don't do a lot of off-roading in, in any of my other vehicles. So doing that, that was a first for me, <laughs> driving through rivers and, and things like that, which was pretty cool and fun and also a lot less scary when you're with a group and yeah. you have like a master diesel mechanic who's traveling with you in a <laughs> truck full of cars or a, in a truck full of tools and parts. <laughs> yeah, you've got some some rescue potential right there. That's good for sure. 
Well, hey, you know, if uh, Greg, unless you have any other questions on that specifically, I was going to pivot because, you know, Cameron, you mentioned, um, you know, a photographer and some video. And that was another kind of thing that we wanted to chat with you about because it seems like fairly recently. And I mean, fill us in on the, you know, on the details, but you've launched a, a new YouTube. Is it, would you say it's a YouTube channel? Uh, yeah. The Watchmakers Workshop. And, you know, full disclosure, I, I haven't seen all of them, but I've checked out several of the videos and it's a pretty cool thing, man. So could you tell us about that and what are your plans for it? So it's called the Watchmakers Workshop and it is pretty much me talking about different um, small details in the watchmaking world. And it could be something super technical or it could be something like watchmaking schools, right? Like it's just anything that falls under this watchmaking umbrella, which is quite broad, uh, like anything from CNC manufacturing and robotics that might be used down to hand polishing a screw head. And I just kind of dive into the details and look at everything from more of a artistic, artisanal, craft kind of level. And I don't focus at all on prices or new products or anything like that. It's, it's completely about like why I love watches and why there's pretty much, if I look at any watch, I can find something that's really cool about it, no matter what price it is. Um, so I, I kind of stay away from price discussion because I think that you can really, you can be a spectator, right? In the watch world and you can enjoy a million dollar watch just by learning about it. It doesn't mean you have to try and own it or even want to own it, but learning about all the details, it just, it's kind of like a great education for, for people who want to know more. Same thing with spirits, right? Some people just want to want to drink and get a buzz and that's fine. But I find that more often than not, I enjoy drinking something that I know more about, right? Consuming something that I've learned more about than if I don't know about it. So kind of trying to do that with watches and it is fully a YouTube channel. Uh, I'm not sure it'll turn into a podcast just because I think it kind of needs the video element and we'll do some short, I say short, but they're kind of long. They're like 10 to 15 minutes for our short episodes. And then I'm going to try and do some longer episodes that are around 45 minutes, hopefully visiting other watchmakers workshops and talking about kind of behind the scenes with technical people instead of meeting with a CEO, like we did on uh, watch and listen and talking with a CEO we would talk with a watchmaker, right? Or somebody in the design department, someone with a more technical background instead of the business side. Well, that, so we, that was exactly going to be one of the questions that we wanted to ask. And before you came on, I mean, Greg and I were kind of, you know, um, ping ponging this back and forth that recently, you know, not necessarily to plug another outlet, but you know, uh, Hodinky did a, a very well-received series of videos a month or so ago, and it was a, you know, a couple of basically like a trip through North America visiting, you know, um, watchmakers and things like that. And we had wondered, me and Greg, 
and Greg jump in here if you want to add something, but like how, how much different it would have been. And one of the things they did is they, you know, popped into Josh Shapiro and how different that would have looked if it was you talking to Josh Shapiro, you know, from a completely different, you know, insider background, not just on the appreciation side, which you also have, but, you know, being somebody who's running a watch business, who's got, you know, significant formal training, you know, who's worked for these big brands doing things with, you know, Vacheron and AP and to have a completely different kind of conversation. And I'd wonder if, you know, Shapiro would have responded to you differently by virtue of, you know, the nature of your experience. I think that would be really cool. And I'm, I'm absolutely signing up to watch that if you do stuff like that. I agree. That's, that's exactly the intention, uh, is to have those discussions between two technical people and try and focus on that. Right. Because like with, uh, with Shapiro's guilloche dials, right. There's, unless you know the right questions to ask, to bring out all the information and the tiny details, it could be really hard to learn a lot and really come away from an episode and say, wow, I have this totally new respect for something like Guilloche and the amount of effort and even like risk that is required to do something like Guilloche where you could get 99% done with a dial and on the last engraving botch it because you're cutting the depth using just hand power, right? For hours sitting there holding something just by hand. And I know if I, if I simply have to hold on to a tool for hours, you'll notice that you start to squeeze harder or you start to think it's going to drop out of your hand. So keeping the pressure, even making a whole, a whole watch dial, these are little details that only somebody who is technical or kind of you don't have to be a watchmaker, but somebody that knows a little more could kind of grab onto those details and, and teach a little better, I think. Yeah. And to sort of, and to sort of give you a, a I think a, a, a um, sort of a, a nod as well, you know, you could, it'd probably be so easy for you to really get super technical, right? Like in an instant, but in, in the amount of videos that I've seen so far from the watchmakers workshop, workshop, it's it's so approachable with still a high level of technical, you know, um, information being shared. So like, depending on where you're coming into it, you're either going to be able to like follow along and be like, oh my gosh, okay, now I've learned a certain amount about this particular topic, whether it was polishing or whether it was, you know, lubricants or whether it was watch going to watchmaking school. Or if I think you have an elevated sense, you're like, okay, wow, this is a really cool connection now that I can have with Cameron because I'm understanding his perspectives on this particular thing. It's like, no matter where you come into it, you're doing an excellent job. I think in these of meeting people, but also still bringing a high level of technical knowledge in a way that's not like, oh my God, my eyes just rolled in the back of my head. I have no idea what's going on anymore, you know, on this topic. Well, thank you. That's that's exactly what I'm trying to do. So it's nice to hear that uh, that it's working. Yeah, if I could offer one suggestion, and to Greg's point, so one of the I watched one of what I thought would be you know the most esoteric topics in the list that you had, and I was like, okay, let's. 
I'm a kind of a sucker. I, I, I find the thing that I think is going to be like lame and just to see if that's cool. Dude, I watched the episode on, on oils and lubricants and watches and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember Mobius. Yeah. Okay. And at, at first I'm like, let's see what this is going to be. This is how, how is this going to be like 12 minutes of content? And I'm like at the 10th minute, like, wow. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, it's it, people like us are going to watch it. I think you should uh, start a Patreon account though, so you can raise enough money to go to Australia and you know meet the guys. Oh, now it's the name's escaping me, but Greg, you know who I'm talking about? Summer's friends. Um, uh, yeah. If it's Australia and it's watchmakers, it's probably uh, Hacko. It is. It is. Yep. 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 Um, the Hacko guys. That yeah. would be, that would be awesome. Cause they do some interesting stuff and, you know, obviously Shapiro or, or Roland Murphy or whatever. I think those would be some interesting episodes to watch and, you know, no pun intended. Um, so that seems like that's going to be a cool endeavor. I like it. it. I think it slots in really well with where you sort of, where you left off with the podcast. Yeah. I, I had to figure out, you know, cause me and Matt having our, conversations what was great about that was he is able to learn like real time about some kind of watch topic and i could feed off of that i could see like oh wow i just i just went into escapement design and totally lost him and i'm probably going to lose everybody else so then i can (laughs) take it back and kind of approach it differently so this one is a little different because it's fully just me talking and teaching and like if I'm passionate about something I hope that that comes through and people can realize that like this one little tiny detail maybe polishing this one chamfer is a huge decision for a watchmaker to make and this is what separates a handmade watch from a more mass-produced watch and that's why this one's going to be 30,000 and this one's going to be, you know, 5,000. But I do it without talking about any prices or brands or anything like that. It's just, you know, there's a place for every watch, basically. And for the folks who haven't seen it yet, I, I, first of all, just stop what you're doing after this pod's over and just go find it literally on YouTube. You can, I think it links off of uh, Cameron's page or there's, a, and, and there's a, uh, an Instagram page, I think, just for the, for the watchmakers workshop too now. Um, so go find it. But um, the production value is super high. And if, in my opinion, it takes a storytelling kind of perspective, right? And so it'd be one thing if like, I mean, we could ask you to elaborate on a particular topic right now and it would be fascinating, right? And you could just post it to YouTube and I guarantee people would be super into it. But like, well, I guess what I'm saying is I could bring, I'm, I'm almost certain I could bring, you know, someone in my family or friends who maybe doesn't, doesn't know they're into watches all the way yet or they're kind of curious and the production value is so high and the storytelling, it's a, it's a narrative kind of focused um, uh, set of videos so far that it's, it's compelling to just sit and watch. I think you did, did a really, I think you guys did a great job in sort of the artistic approach to recording and producing it because it's just really well done. It's not just like Cameron in front of his workshop, which again, like would have been super fascinating anyway. There's, a, there's an artistic approach to it, which I'm sure you guys all discussed as you were planning it out. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's all Andrew. He does all the filming, all the editing, um, and then I do the the talking. <laughs> but he's able to to create a wonderful story and has a really good vision for the production value and keeping that high. And 
keeping all the stories so that it all makes sense and is edited in such a way that it, it can be followed easily. It's definitely was... a good thing if you have like uh, if you have a family member, relative, wife, something that doesn't understand your fascination with watches, right? You can pop on one of these episodes and immediately like, wow, okay, now I I understand why there's you know so many options of watches or why you've collected 50 watches over your life why you spend so much time on this and i, I think that's uh kind of cool i almost liken it you're right you're absolutely right I, I almost liken it to like um if you're at like a charity fundraiser and like you won like an hour you know with like this esteemed guest right or maybe you bought this vip experience like you almost feel like you're sitting in the workshop with you and you're almost just talking to just the one person watching it in a way that's like totally digestible. I don't, I don't know if that just sort of occurred to me. It's like this sort of very intimate experience where you feel like you're just across the screen from Cameron and he's telling you these like different topics in a way that's totally approachable, but also highly technical. I like hearing that because I do, I used to hear, and I still do hear it pretty frequently that the watchmaking world is secretive and, uh, I don't really like to hear that because it shouldn't be it's if it's secretive, then there's not going to be a future in watchmaking, right? Like there's a reason I work in this workshop alone. It's because it's really hard to find other watchmakers and it's really hard to find other machinists and people that can make parts that are as tiny and as perfect as watch parts need to be. So there's not a lot of, people working in this industry and if we want to have the opportunity to have these items in the future and have more of these items made right i want to see more watches i want to see more brands just like with craft beer right how exciting is it to have so many options that you can try different beers all the time you don't have to just have the same thing there's this whole huge ecosystem and people are collaborating with different breweries. So I want that in watches. I want the information to be out there so that people can become interested and people can say, Hey, I want to be a machinist that makes tiny little screws. I want to be a five axis machine op, uh, programmer to make watch cases, or I want to be in watch design or movement design. So, I hope to kind of shine some light on that and try and gain access into others work, other watchmakers workshops as well to show behind the scenes there. And maybe if more people are interested in it, more people can go to school and develop a career or just create a brand because there's more craftspeople able to support your vision. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. I mean, I have a um, sort of a selfish motivation for, you know, cheerleading for you on that. I mean, I have two kids who are kind of at that age where they're finishing one element of school and kind of moving on to the next. <clears throat> and neither of them really have a sense of, you know, what it is they want to do career-wise. And I've really, you know, tried to open their eyes to the idea of, you know, skilled, like compensated trades. And you know, that, that kind of thing goes away. So when I, I see what you've done, at least in some of your, your episodes, 
you know, talking about the school and the process of becoming a watchmaker, it reminds me a little bit, not to compare you directly to somebody else, but if you, if you remember that guy, Mike Rowe, um, yeah. you know, a, a huge sensation, but, you know, doing the, the dirty jobs and things like that, or, and the guy's name escapes me, but the, the actor who played, uh, you know, Clavin on, uh, on Cheers, but he, he was, and it, I think remains to this day, a huge champion for skilled trades in the United States. And that's the kind of thing, as you said, the, the industry could be a lot bigger and healthier in the United States if there was a, a wider pool of people that could, you know, run the machines, be movement designers and trained watchmakers, you know, at all levels to say nothing of like the finishing artisans and things like that. Yeah, who do like exactly. what That's a whole, there are so many different craftspeople involved in bringing a watch to market, whether it is a $100 watch or a $100,000 watch. The more that we can expose people to all of those different art forms and all those different possible career paths, right? The more we might find that someone's really interested in doing that particular thing, right? It could be uh, like as simple as being a five axis machinist, right? You can either make some widget that you don't know what it's going to end up in, or you could make a watch part. If you're passionate about watches or industrial design or these things, it might be much more interesting to work in a workshop where you're creating something that people will interact with on a daily, uh, you know, on just everyday winding it, wearing it. It could be very interesting for the right person. So exposing people to these careers that they might never have known of otherwise is pretty cool. Yeah. And if I, I, I'm thinking back to the episode, you, you talk about your path a little bit and like you were literally watch crazy, right? Like from this yeah. very early age and had no, there was a disconnect between what was on your wrist, which you were absolutely obsessed with versus how it was, how it got there. Yeah. I, I did not know that there was such thing as a watchmaker. I had no idea. And when somebody told me that there are watchmakers in Switzerland that put these together, it was, I, I was blown away. And then it's still, even, even knowing that there were watchmakers and that it could be a job for me, I still had to figure out how to become a watchmaker, right? How to go to school and, and get the training. And that took years for me to figure out where to go to school even. Um, and I just, years of perseverance and finally ended up finding a school and going to school. Now, if and when you 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 kind of visit some of these other, you know, watchmakers or um, sort of uh, the different skilled, you know, artisans, do you think you'll focus on American watchmaking or do you think it'll be sort of, you know, watchmaking at large? What Do you have any thoughts on that? I am going to focus on everything. Uh, it doesn't have to be American. I think just the uh, people who have a large amount of knowledge in a particular mm -hmm. area, that really interests me because I've, I've learned over the last 10 years setting up this business that there are not that many extremely like knowledgeable people in whatever industry it might be. There's this very top level person that holds a lot of the knowledge. And if that knowledge could be made available to 
more people, that's kind of the goal is to get some of that knowledge out into, into the light uh, and speak with some of these people who are like the top 10%, which in the watch world, the top 10% could be one guy because there's only 10 of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it could be something like, like guilloche is a great example. The number of people doing guilloche, it's really a tiny number of people. So to find somebody who is like kind of peak guilloche, just knows the most about these old machines and about how to achieve certain results, bringing that to light is amazing. Because when that person's gone, if nobody has been able to keep that story alive, then that's it. That's done, right? So, like, at RGM, he, I mean, he's in America doing guilloche dials. Something like that, it needs to be taught. Because we don't want to have the knowledge disappear and then we have to relearn and reverse engineer machines. Because I've also been through that where you you have some tool that you don't even know what it, what it was made for. And you have to then figure out what it was made for. So really hard to master something if you don't even really know what you're trying to do and what the tools are even for. That's fascinating. You're right. I, I'm going to send you, um, you'll appreciate this as sort of a spirits enthusiast, but also as a sort of a, a you know, a tinkerer and a mechanic and an engineer. There's a, we, uh, one of our former guests is a, as a, a booze consultant, and uh, one of his clients is this um, Denver-based distillery called Leopold Brothers. And they essentially recreated, as you're describing, you know, a th what they call a three-chamber still to make rye whiskey that had been, that essentially had vanished. It had vanished in, 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 in the name of sort of productivity and efficiency. And, and so he was looking back through these old, you know, um, uh, scholarship on, on, on distilling and stumbled across this machine. Anyway, he had retaught, essentially built it, you know, with the help of, of sort of, you know, the right people, but built this and it learned how to use it himself. And just the painstaking uh, work to go into that. I think what you're talking about is addressing it before it even gets to that point, right? Like, don't, don't let these things vanish. Let's make sure we're, you know, the lifeblood continues, you know, for the next you know generation and generation after that. Right. And then who knows, best case you find, you connect at least one person to somebody else and you ignite some passion for somebody that they can dedicate some time and energy into learning something, right? I, I look at my daughters and I hope that they'll come work in the workshop and find one little part of the business that they love because there's, there's so much here to learn and I'm only gonna learn probably like 3% of every little thing, right? I'll be like, I'll get 3% of all the knowledge on five axis milling, but there's, there's so much more to learn. Cause I'm not a specialist in that. I'm just, I can make my one product that I need to make. Same thing with the, with finishing and all of these different decoration and timing and engineering the like tooth profiles on wheels. We could go into so many tiny little details where there could be either improvements or just more knowledge, right? The number of places that make pinions and wheels in the US, again, I could count it on one hand. <laughs> Probably without using all your fingers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Well, you know, you've talked about sort of learning and connecting with people and kind of inspiring people to to look into things like, you know, watchmaking, to say nothing of the fact that, I mean, it's entertaining for people like us who are sort of already in it. Um, but the one thing you haven't talked about is selling watches and A, that's like super refreshing. But I mean, I think that, you know, the the reality is it probably would be, you know, an unspoken byproduct of the effort. And I mean, and I hope it is. Because it seems like one of the things that I observed just in my in my own head, watching these videos, pardon me, <clears throat> is it was kind of like having you back in LA. You know, you're missed here in LA in the watch circles in Los Angeles and Southern California, and it's kind of like reconnecting. And that's one of the things. And it's so hard right now to sort of differentiate between a small watch brand, an independent watch brand, a micro brand, whatever. There's there's a lot of gray area. But one of the things that all the, the the good ones have in in common, at least in my opinion, is like the the level of access that as a consumer you have to the people making the watches. And it seems like that's not necessarily something you look for, but when it's there, um, as a consumer, as somebody who's an enthusiast, the level of enthusiasm gets a lot deeper, a lot faster. And that connection with the brand is not something you're ever going to get. As much as I like Omega, let's say, compared to Rolex, you're never going to be a known quantity to a brand like Omega or Rolex or IWC or anything like that. Um, you know, I mean, unless you've got a, a bunch of Grammy wins or something like that. But, you know, but on the other hand, like you can know a Cameron Weiss or, you know, somebody from another brand that's in the sort of same area as you are. And I think that these, these videos let us kind of peek over your fence a little bit and see what you're up to in, in a cool way. And it's just like kind of keeping, keeping up with cam, you know, what's he, what's he doing? What's he got going? It's cool. I like it. Yeah. I enjoy making them. And I, uh, I personally, it's not really a commercial venture at all. Um, I enjoy meeting other people in the industry. I enjoy, inspiring like a little passion in or creating maybe possibly a new watch collector or watch enthusiast, whatever that might be. Um, I like to, to kind of expose people to watchmaking. And I have obviously people outside of the watchmaking realm that have reached out to me and are blown away by how much goes into making a watch just from watching a couple episodes. So there'll be a lot more of that, which is great. Um, but I do think that a very cool thing about watches, you can own many of them. So I don't really look at like other watch brands as competition, right? It's really just that that's perfect because it wouldn't be much fun if you could only have one watch, right? We want to have more watches. So I think any, any new companies or, um, like new, new watches, new designs, things like that. All of it's great. And I just want to see growth and I'd love to see that growth happen in the U S kind of selfishly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, speaking of new watches and new designs and we got to talk more Weiss, right? So like, tell us what, what has been new in the workshop? What's been new? What, what kind of things uh, should we, let's talk about what's what you've been up to because you've been up you've been busy we talked about how busy you've been sort of outside of the workshop which you've allowed yourself to to sort of sneak out a, a few times recently but there, you've been really busy in the workshop too 
Yeah, yeah, we had to. So in the workshop, I have two new machines, which are keeping me really busy. One of them is a larger Swiss lathe. Um, so another machine that is for larger production of watch components, things like mainspring barrels, um, watch crowns, things that are too large for my other lathe that I've had for, uh, I guess, seven years I've had the other lathe. So now I have a, a small lathe for tiny little things like screws and pinions. I have a slightly bigger lathe, which is for larger parts, mainspring barrels, uh, bigger wheels and crowns. And then even more recent than that, I have this unbelievable new German machine that is a five axis mill turn. Uh, and I can take a bar of material, load it into the side, and I can cut apart off the front of the bar, which is kind of like my lathes are set up where I cut apart off the front of the bar. Uh, and then the bar feeds in and I can cut the next part. The reason I really like these machines is because, like I said before, there's not a lot of people who know how to operate this equipment because it is extremely specialized. So there's a little bit of a trade-off, right? You have fewer, there's less knowledge out there about these machines, but if you can be the person that actually learns how to use them properly, then you can run them very efficiently without having to hire a bunch of other people, right? So it allows me to focus on the finishing of parts, new designs, and also the watch making, the actual assembly. So getting all of that running smoothly for something like a watch where you have over a hundred pieces, right? So the machines have to be changed over every different part you make. You have to program the next part. You have to set up the tools. Doing that takes a lot of time. But as I get the efficiency up, we should be able to have more US-made movements and components inside movements, which I'm really fascinated with, and that's, that's why I've done this. Um, but with that new machine, I'm able to make cases in smaller batches. So I've been doing a lot with titanium because I can buy a little three-foot bar of titanium and I can cut 20 watch cases off the front of it. And then I can switch back over to stainless steel. And that's kind of our main material. So we can go back to that and I can do 100 cases on that. But it's really easy for me to go back and forth. And it doesn't cost me a lot of money because I don't, I'm not ordering from a contract manufacturer where they want to make a certain number of parts for every setup. Because the main cost incurred is the time it takes to set up the machine. And then once my part is done, they tear it all apart and they load somebody else's part, which doesn't look at all like my part and doesn't share any of the same tools. Uh, it could be a different diameter bar. So changing the machine over for a different part is very expensive. Since I own the machines now, they can stay set up for watch parts. Hopefully, I can make watch parts like cases and, and possibly even movement parts for other watchmakers or designers, uh, which I think would be great because I really wish 10 years ago when I started, I could have called somebody up and said, Hey, I have this idea. This is what my watch, I want it to look like this, right? Can you make this? And 
10 years ago, that was not a possibility in the U.S. Now, somebody could say, here's what I want my watch to look like, and I could actually, I could make a 3D drawing, I could program the machine, I could tool up the machine, and cut that watch case. And chances are, somebody else's watch design is going to utilize almost all the same tooling as my current design. So it'll save money for me and for the end person who's coming up with that design. Just, it could be much more approachable to, to start a brand in the U.S. That's super fascinating. You know, I was, I was thinking in the back of my head if that was an appropriate question or not, but you know, you, you're always so open that it's already crossed your mind and you already, and it's probably based on your own experience. Like you said, if you could have rewound 10 years ago and had a resource like that, my goodness, you would have been probably like thrilled about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm just trying to learn all of these new things because they are, these are full careers on their own, right? If I had, if I had five to 10 years to learn how to do this one thing and five to 10 years to learn how to do the next thing, there's probably a hundred different things I need to learn all five to 10 years worth of experience to, to get really good at them. I, I don't know if I'll live that long, but. Well, yeah, well, we try. know. Without mentioning names or anything, I mean, we know that there are small brands out there that are getting help from other small brands that are in turn getting, you know, stuff done by outside entities. And this seems like this would, you know, help you kind of close that circle um, a lot quicker, you know, if you were one of if you were one of the entities that they were dealing with. And I mean, when I say you, I don't mean you right now, but at, at some point, hypothetically in the future, some entity that you're involved with you know, could be, could help with a lot of the manufacturing throughput and the fact that your quality control is good and, you know, that you're overseeing stuff. I mean, you're not, you're getting bigger, but I mean, you're still, it's largely seeing and touching everything. And I have to admit, I mean, you know, the, the 38 millimeter standard issue is not a super complicated object as watches go, but the value to me is like the transparency that we get from you and the quality that you put into this. And then the fact that like Cameron touches so much of this, like so much of the value add at every stage is by Cameron or somebody who's under Cameron's supervision. And that's a, a level of transparency that you just don't, you don't get with like big Swiss brands, you know, where you, you're kind of assuming, you know, that, it, and again, I won't mention any names, but I mean, there's a brand who's you know, got this great new assembly facility. And I'm like, they keep saying assembly. Where's, where's the manufacturing? You yes. know, where, where, where are the big machines? Yeah. You know, are they, are they in another building in some other Canton? Are they in a different country? <laughs> um, it, it shouldn't matter, but I mean, it kind of does. Um, yeah. There's uh, I like the idea that a lot of this stuff, I mean, you know, the people listening to this won't know this, but prior to starting recording, Cameron held up that, you know, that bar stock of titanium. And this thing is basically like, you know, about the length of a, a standard baseball bat and about as wide. And you know that that thing is going to be watches at some point soon. And, you know, you know, it was done in Nashville, like basically under, under Cameron's hands and eyes. And that to me is, is the value. And I think you, you, could pass that value on in a good way to other new brands, you know, that maybe wanted to have yeah. stuff done here, you know, by somebody yeah. who knew, knew what they were doing. Yeah. And I'm definitely uh, very hands-on with everything. I even like this morning I was doing air compressor repairs and I was thinking, 
what what am I doing? <laughs> like, I, why am I repairing air compressors? I, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> well, not unlike, not unlike the first longboard that you made, right? Yeah. Everybody said, well, Cameron, exactly. how do you know how to make a longboard? You said, well, I don't, but I, I'm curious. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to be persistent and I'm going to make one. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, I, I definitely, I gravitate towards having, the right tool for every job. And I, I have some friends that are Harbor Freight people, right? They, they know they're only going to use a tool once. So they go get it at Harbor Freight. They use it once and then it probably ends up in the trash. I have a really hard time doing that because I always think like, whatever it is, I'm, whatever it is that I'm going to do with this tool, I'm going to try and master it. Right. And then I'm going to try and do it as many times as I can over the rest of my life. Right. And it could be like fixing an air compressor. And if I find that there's a certain tool that is the best tool for that, I'm going to get that tool because I'm probably going to fix the air compressor every year for the rest of my life instead of just fixing it once and tossing <laughs> the, the tool. Having the right tool is amazing. I kind of built like my dream workshop here where hopefully I could fix anything, whether it's cars or watches <laughs> or air compressors or even fixing other tools that are broken. That's fixing right. Fixing CNC yeah. machines. So well, on, on, on the, on the white side of things, what do we, what do we see? I'm sorry, Matt, if I jumped in, but I'm curious if you can give us any, any uh, heads up or, or previews or, or give us any, um, teasers that we might have everybody sort of hang on to and what we might see for, you know, maybe the rest of 2023 or, or even beyond. Well, I'm working on some, uh, some titanium cases. So there may or may not be some options with, uh, some unique dial colors coming up soon, which you've been crushing lately, just crushing. It's well, that, that was going to be my question, Greg is like, what's coming next and would you do additional colors? I, I know we've talked back channel Cameron over the past year, but I know for a fact that there's like, there's a market for the, something close to the, um, that Land Rover LE that you did about three years ago. Yeah. Um, if, if you redid something like that, you know, with a couple of the different, like cool esoteric colors, um, Greg, I mean, I'm not going to put him on blast and, and say that he has to buy it, but like our, our friend, Summer Eskimo, um, I've talked to, you know, some other people who, I, again, I won't like name drop, but there's definitely people who like those colors. And you, I think there's a lot of, a lot of like runway on the, on the dial colors for yeah, sure. I, I definitely enjoyed doing that and experimenting with new, new colors. So I have, uh, I've got five different colors on my bench right now with prototype dials and testing out some things. We'll do some more titanium cases. I think, uh, I think they'll be super cool when those get released. And then I am also, like I kind of talked about before working on some more movement stuff. That's a little further down the road, but Nashville made movements are coming. So, <laughs> That really is about so that. cool. So cool. Would you put that on the dial? Would it say Nashville or would it say Tennessee or something like that? I mean, I'll definitely do, I'm definitely going to do some sort of limited edition uh, to kind of launch that 
and we will definitely have Nashville on the dial for that. I also, I mean, I'm just spitballing here because Matt was asking too, but I also like the idea of sometimes on the movement, you know, when you, back in the day, you think about, you know, looking at movements and they say Lancaster PA on them or whatever, like that's kind of cool to me too. So that'd be neat. Another idea, of course, but you've got a dozen of them in your head. Matt had asked me a question earlier or posed a question to me earlier. And we were curious in terms of coming up with the dial colors or new colors, you know, in, 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 on, on the, uh, in the watch side, how does that process go for you? Like, how is it sort of like this epiphany or are you sort of riffing on, on previous things? Like, is it difficult? Like curious how, how it finally comes to fruition when we see the agave, the carbon dial, the, you know, the, the blue dials come out. I usually see something in real life, you know, either um, it could be like a, an item, like a car, or it could be a plant or uh, a mural or some art. I'll see something see a color that I like and then I have a set of uh, Pantone cards here like a whole binder full of them and I'll go through and I'll I'll try to kind of find something that brings me back to that color right it's not always the same shade or the same exact color uh, but I'll kind of come up with those colors that way and then I can pretty much drop that into our dial designs because I've already got the, the numerals and the fonts and all of that figured out. And then it's just kind of a matter of figuring out what's going to visually look the best and provide good contrast. Um, so like with your agave 38 millimeter, that one is one of the, one of the few, we just started doing this. I have good enough printing now that we can do a black border around the loom, which makes that stand out and adds uh, it's a little more complex to make that dial, but it looks amazing and has awesome contrast, whether it's dark or light. So things like that, I'll kind of work through and and hammer down the details, and then I'll make a sample. And then once I've got the sample, I'll, that's when I can really tell whether I like it or I don't like it. Do some of them end up hitting the the sort of the the, the uh, cutting room floor? Some of them, you, it, when it comes to sample, you're kind of like, eh, eh, not not so much what I was thinking. Yeah, it happens, but usually I usually it's like one element that's a little off, and then I can fix it. Um, so like I do have some prototype stuff sitting around that is slightly different from the actual production ones, and then there's a couple colors that never got released. Yeah, I could see with the format of the watch, I mean, it lends itself to a lot of different colors, you know, you, and I could see, you know, like a, uh, a flat yellow being really cool, like almost like an oxidized yellow paint, uh, you know, or something like that. Um, you know, bro dinky references this color all the time when it's a certain shade of light blue, he always refers to it as like, you know, carrot, like tar heel blue or Carolina blue, yeah. um, you know, something like that would look rad. Um, dude, I, you know, what is the, what are Tennessee colors? I know that's a different city, but that's, uh, like the, you know, the orange and, and white. Um, yeah, there's a, a lot of different things you could do. I mean, heck, you know, I don't know. USC colors. Yeah. Right. Cardinal gold. Yeah. All of those. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, it sounds like, uh, I mean the titanium watch, I really like it. I think it lends itself well in this format. It's super it's light. It's a dream. It's a dream yeah. on the wrist. It's so, yeah. Good. 
your the strat the strat pairing too is another you know thing not to overlook and you do such a good job with that so we we know we can expect maybe some more titanium and just interesting dial colors coming out do you ever think you'll do a completely different format of watch i know last year was a dive watch do you ever think you'd do something like a chronograph or a you know a second time zone or anything like that i i have been uh toying with a chronograph and i have a a prototype of a chronograph. Whoa. But I just okay. haven't, I haven't had the time to sit down and actually figure out how to get that into production because it is quite a bit more complex. You Even if you're not making the movement, right, you're still making a lot more hands. You have, lot, you have extra buttons, right? So you, lots more gaskets. You have all these retaining clips, buttons, a case for a chronograph becomes far more complex and the tolerances are really tight to get everything. It's just, uh, it's a little bit of a nightmare right now with how many parts I'm trying to make on just four machines. So to kind of double that <laughs> is tricky. <laughs> right. But I do have a, a final design that I really like. Um, so it's just a matter of time. Wow, that's cool. That's super exciting. That is cool. I'll definitely have to keep the eyes open for that. And I know, you know, people who are are fans of your work, um, you know, here in Los Angeles and beyond would definitely be interested in seeing that. So as soon as you're able to post some pictures or, you know, or or throw it out into the universe and let it sort of start to manifest, whatever the, you know, the kids say now, um, we'd love to see it. But we are uh, we're almost pushing an hour and a half now. We should probably wrap this up fairly soon. Um, is there anything else you kind of want to throw out, Cam? Is where you know where can people find you on Instagram? I know you know as a brand. I mean that's a no brainer, right? It's Weiss Watch Company. But is where should people look to find you on social media or what have you? Yeah, if you want to find me on social media, uh, you can follow me on Instagram, and that's Cameron M Weiss. Uh, you can also follow the brand, Weiss Watch Company. Um, and then on YouTube, if you want to check out any of those videos, uh, YouTube is The Watchmaker's Workshop. Yeah, I subscribed. I want to make sure I get notifications each time it comes up because uh, it's like must-see TV. Yeah, definitely subscribe. We're trying to put out an episode every week, but it does take time to produce it. So... There might be some weeks where we just can't get one done. Uh, but yeah, the goal is once a week to have a, an episode. For the quality of them and for the content, I think it's worth waiting. So if they, if it's, if everybody has to wait one week, you know, hold your horses. It'll be, it'll be worthwhile. Yeah, no, for sure. As, as Greg says, the quality of the output is really strong. And some of these episodes, as you mentioned, Cameron, are, you know, north of 40 minutes. I mean, they're, it's significant, right? So it's a, it's a, significant time investment, I'm sure, to make it, certainly to watch it, but in a good way. And that would be my recommendation for the week um, is, you know, honestly, yeah, go check this out. And if you haven't seen it in a while, refresh your memory on Cameron's offerings at Weiss Watch. Cameron, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you got shouted out on a uh, another YouTube channel. I think a few months ago, there was the guys at uh, About Effing Time. They have a little segment called, you know, bring your own independent or bring your own micro, something like that. I think it's bring your own independent. And uh, one of the guys was like, no, you, you got to look into Weiss watches. So 
man, people know who you are. The watches are fantastic. They speak for themselves. And as I said before, we miss you in Los Angeles. It's good to see you. Good to talk to you, man. Yeah. Great talking with you guys. We'll have to do this again soon. We'll, we'll call Whitney when it becomes the summer of no, we'll, we'll slide in there. (laughs) Yeah. Right on. Thanks so much, Cameron. Always so much fun to hang out with you, man. We really appreciate it. Yeah. I'll cheers you later when I have that, uh, Vago. Yeah. Send us a picture. I want to know which one you're, which one you're pouring. Yeah. Perfect. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll hit you up on the chat and, uh, if we can persuade you at any point, we're, we're very trustworthy as far as embargoes go. If you ever want to send us any sketches or whatever of that chronograph. Yeah. Yeah. It won't won't end up on some, uh, some gaming, you know, chat platform or whatever. Right on guys. Well, Cameron, right. thanks for making the time. I appreciate it. Greg, it's good to see you. And that'll be the last sip for us. I'm going to go ahead and hit the stop button and we'll catch you on the flip side. Sounds good. Cheers. Have a good afternoon and evening. Thanks, guys. Bye. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help. You can find us on Instagram at Spirit of Time Podcast and contact us at Spirit of Time Podcast at gmail.com. As always, please drink responsibly. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.